Welcome to the Own Your Choices, Own Your Life podcast. I know you are here wanting to change and rewrite your story. You are desiring to step into the impact that you know you were here to create. I am here to guide you with the proven tools and strategies used by myself and our speakers to support you in taking radical responsibility in your life and learning how to own your choices to change your story. My name is Marsha Van Weinsberg. I am a storytelling business coach, master NLP trainer, speaker, podcaster, and seven times published author. My clients have found freedom and purpose from overcoming their shame stories and learning how to share them with the world. I am so grateful you are here. Let's get started. Welcome back to the show. Today, you're in for a treat. I received a form from Robert Kerbeck a number of months ago about being a guest on the podcast. And I looked at it and went, oh, this is interesting. Robert is an author and a former corporate spy. And his book, his true crime memoir is called Ruse, Lying the American Dream from Hollywood to Wall Street. And it is the story of how a wannabe actor became the world's greatest corporate spy. I honestly knew nothing about what rusing was. And so I dove into Robert's Audible book and I'll make sure it's linked in the show notes as well. And it was fascinating and entertaining and the backend stories that you're going to hear, it's it's so, so good. You definitely want to listen to it. So as we dove into this episode, Robert shares his story and how we are never too late in our lives to continue to pivot in our lives, in our jobs, in our careers, and that everything we are walking through and going through is leading us to the next thing. So as he shares his journey uh, as being a Hollywood actor to Wall Street, as a former corporate spy, to a writer, to speaking and sharing his story, It's really powerful. And it's a reminder for you that you are never too late to continue to pivot into the career that you desire to have. And everything you're walking through right now is not for loss. It isn't. It's actually setting you up for the next stage in your life. And a reminder that we are all walking through so many different stories and experiences, and they are continually shaping us into who we are becoming and the work that we are here to do. You're going to love this episode. And again, I encourage you to take a look at Robert's book. It is so, so good. You're going to love this show. Welcome to the show today, Robert. I'm so thrilled to have you here. Oh, thank you, Marsha. It's a pleasure to be here. When I first saw your information come through, I took a look at it and it was so fascinated because I'm going to be completely real. I did not know the definition of rusing and or understand mm. what ruse was. So before we even dive into a lot of your story, can you tell the audience like what rusing is? Yes. Yeah, so rusing is basically social engineering, um, which is another term for tricking um, and using, uh, let's be honest, deceit and manipulation to get people to tell you things that they shouldn't tell you mm-hmm. or do things for you that they definitely should not do. Right. And we, um, you know, um, 
basically, you know, you know, we could talk about the origin of how I became a corporate spy. Um, but, you know, that's what we called it. We called it, or the woman who hired us to do this job when my buddy and I got this job way back in the day, um, it was called The Ruse. And so hence the title of my book, Ruse. Mm-hmm. Okay. So corporate spy, tell us a little bit about how you got started there. Yeah. So, you know, my hometown is Philadelphia, obviously, you know, fly Eagles fly, uh, Super Bowl on Sunday. I don't know when this episode will, will air, but hopefully they've won the game, uh, when the episode airs. And, um, I grew up in Philadelphia. My family is well known in the automobile business. Um, if you're looking for a deal on a Lamborghini, tell them I sent you. And, I um, you. I went, yeah, yeah. Think about me, Maserati, whatever you want. And, uh, so I, graduated college. When I was in college, I kind of um, was paying for college by myself. And so I, I, I worked a full-time job and didn't get to do a lot of the typical college things until later in college. And and I really wanted to meet people. And particularly, I wanted to meet young women. And so I'm like, well, where can I meet a lot of attractive young women? The theater. And so um, someone who had never done a play, never had really been interested in the theater, I auditioned, I got hired, and I started to get the leads in all of these plays uh, my last two years in college. And it, and I really was interested in it and I really enjoyed it. And I thought about moving to New York to become an actor, but uh, you know, nobody in my family was an artist of any shape, form, ilk, nothing, you know, like the idea of trying that just seems so, it was like going to the moon, right? And so I went to work for my father in the family car business and it just didn't feel right to me. The, the kind of the trickery of car sales, the dishonesty, uh, it just didn't sit right with me, which of course turned out to be pretty ironic when I needed a survival job when I did go to New York to become an actor and who stumbles into a job as a corporate spy, but that's what happened to me. Okay. So, so thank you for sharing that. And I can even think back to, you know, uh, in the time that you're speaking of how unfortunately car salesmen did have a, Mm. I don't want to say sleazy, but that was, that was the feeling of it, but people were all driving cars. We all needed them. It's not like it was, you know, you're selling something that people don't need. So it's so weird how it had that connotation, but if I can look back, I mean, they knew how to sell. Yeah. Well, look, you can make a pretty good argument that any salesperson, any salesperson, you're trying to sell your product Mm -hmm. for the most money you can sell it for um, in any industry, you know. And so you can make an argument that all sales is a form of trickery. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, it's an interesting thing being a salesperson because, you know, you're trying to sell your product. You want to make money. Usually you're paid on some commission basis. Um, And so if I sell it to you for more, that's good for me and it's good for my company. So, you know, that, you know, that's just the nature of sales. No, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. So you started with Rusing, and when you did this, like, was this a did, was it a full time job to help to support your acting, or how did how did it fit into your lifetime? Just to share with the listeners. Yeah. So, you know, this is, you know, we're going back into the nineties now. And, um, you know, again, as I said, actors need survival jobs. Most actors are waiters, um, which I didn't have the patience for or bartenders. And I wasn't a late night guy. So that was out. And my buddy, uh, had this job and he told me about it in a very kind of mysterious way. And then he shut up right away. Like he knew he'd been told, do not talk about this. And I said, you know, Hey, you know, buddy, I'm broke. You got to, I need a job. And so he got me this interview 
Um, I was living in Hell's Kitchen at the time. The interview was on the Upper East Side, which is kind of the old money, ritziest part of Manhattan. I go up to this uh, doorman building. I take the elevator to the penthouse and I'm like, what the heck? This woman ushers me in the nicest apartment I'd ever been in. An apartment doesn't even do it justice. Mm -hmm. And I realized whatever this woman was doing, it was lucrative. Um, She was making a lot of money. And she has this strange interview with me. She never tells me anything about the job, um, sends me on my way. I think I didn't get the job because she didn't ask me any questions about my skills or whatever. And my buddy calls and says, you got the job, but don't get too excited because no one is able to do this job. Ooh. And yeah. And so I, and, and I'm like, well, I'm going to be able to do it. And of course I had to be able to do it because I was broke. Yeah. And the reason it was such an advantageous job for actors is, you know, look, we're living in an era, you know, post COVID where all of a sudden everything went remote. Like everybody could work from home. You know, you and I are doing these podcasts from our home back in the day, you'd have to go to a studio. Right. So yeah. the world has changed so much. So, so quickly, but you know, back in the nineties and, and I mean, in the two thousands, in the 2010s to have a job, that you could work from home that was flexible that was part-time was a huge draw for actors and and that was the big thing is that you know we could go and you know we could do some spying for a couple hours we could go to an audition we could do some spying for a couple hours we could go to another audition so it was a really big deal um for actors and um you know when i started doing the job i was getting eight dollars an hour um and by the end of my spying career or towards the end of my spying career i was making millions of dollars a year. I, and I, I, I'm going to refer to it a few times on the, on the episode is I did read your book and I got it on audible. Fantastic job. Honestly, just absolutely enjoyed listening to it. That piece there on, you know, recognizing that you started at $8 an hour. I know you fought hard a couple of times to get that raise, to get more, Um, lost your job once for asking for a raise, right? And then to make it to millions of dollars. So basically to simplify it for somebody who's listening, you were paid by companies to get information on, it was like, I don't want to say headhunting, but you were looking for that information. And then these companies paid you to find that information. Correct. So, you know, we, you think about the era before LinkedIn, right? Which was, of course, you know, LinkedIn really didn't take off until after the crash of 2008. So right around 2009, 2010, LinkedIn really started to, to get going. So really it's just been big for a decade, just over a decade. But before that, there was no way for corporations to know who was at a company, what people's role was at a company, what they did for a company. And most importantly, who were the rock stars at the company? Who were the top producers, the top money makers, the top salespeople, the top traders, the top bankers, whatever business it was, right? The top designers. And what we would do is we would go in using our rusing skills, using our acting skills, and we would create stories, personas, voices, accents. And we would do all of these things to get people to tell us who the top people were. And 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 for your listeners, Almost every corporation ranks their employees. Now, sometimes the employees don't even know that, but there is an internal system metric for ranking you as an employee, you know, and um, we would learn what those metrics were. We would learn what the salaries of people were. And so that our clients could see, hey, this is one of the top people at this firm, but they're underpaid. 
they're really not getting paid a lot. And usually it was like a young, younger person that was just really up and coming. And so we would identify those rock stars and imagine, you know, if you you know, let's say your company is number five in a field and imagine if you can poach, you know, two or three of the top people from the number one company in your field or the number two company in your field. And by the way, when they come, they often bring secrets about what they're company is doing, what their new products are, what the pricing of the products, all of these different things that when you take these people, it all of a sudden switches the balance of powers. You were number five. Now you're number two because talent, you know, I always go back to sports. You know, we were talking about sports earlier, you know, uh, Tom Brady, the famous uh, quarterback for the new England Patriots, when he left as a free agent and went to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Patriots haven't won a Super Bowl since they haven't been to a Super Bowl since. Tom Brady won a Super Bowl, right? And that's just an example of talent. What talent can do in sports, it's the same thing in in business. Is that when you're able to get top talent, especially from your rivals, um, huge. And and just like football, corporate America is just as competitive, just as cutthroat. Throat, win at all costs. Do whatever you can to steal secrets from your competitors. Uh, you know, their employees, you know, whatever you can do to win. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you for that analogy. Cause that like connects the dots, especially like, for people who might not know I've never worked in corporate. So there's so many things that I, that were new to me and I've learned just through my husband or through friends and different jobs, but that makes so much sense. So you did, how long did you work for someone for before you created your own company? You know, that's a good question. I don't remember the exact number of years, but, you know, most of the beginning years, you know, this, 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 the ruse was, you know, it was just something we did. That's how we rationalize it. And again, I'm not, I'm not here to tell you that I'm, pr- I'm proud of, of what we did, though it is a hell of a crazy fun story. Um, but we were, you know, getting $8 an hour, $9 an hour. It was just a survival job because we were going to be famous. We were going to be famous actors. And as you know, you read the book, I was a working actor and I was working with and having encounters with Paul Newman and uh, George Clooney and James Gandolfini and Kevin Spacey and Yoko Ono and OJ Simpson and all of these crazy people that I was interacting with and working with. So of course I was just like, look, the ruse, it's just temporary any day. Now it's going to be gone. And then at a certain point, my acting career to my, disappointment and surprise, uh, really waned. And all of a sudden, uh, the ruse job, people started throwing money at me and begging me to do, you know, the biggest corporations in the world were basically saying, please let us hire you, please. You know, and that was a moment where I made a decision that, you know what, I, I, I was going to take that money. And, and, you know, and that's part of what I talk about in the book. And as you know, there's a real reckoning, especially later mm-hmm. about the moral issues of, of that and how I felt about that. Um, and that's one of the reasons why, you know, I really like your podcast is because, you know, you talk about that, you know, owning your choices, you know, and so you can't go back and change the past, but what you can hopefully do is learn from it, which is mm-hmm. part of why I wrote the book and part of why I do wrestle with the morality of, of what I did. Um, and now hopefully I can have some lessons for, for younger people. And then of course, also I speak to corporations now about how not to fall victim to cybersecurity issues, cybercrime issues, ransomware issues, which is of course something I never did, but now ransomware is just a huge issue for corporations all over the world. These ransomware attacks. Oh, and I'm, I'm so glad you went here because I do have a couple of, um, 
people and clients that I work with that work in cybersecurity and they talk about how it is such a busy up and coming profession because this is something that is happening all the time. I had no idea. And so I think it's fantastic that you now get to speak to corporations about ways that they can help to, you know, protect themselves in this era. Yeah. I mean, the the short version is corporations spend a tremendous amount of money protecting their systems, servers, firewall, encryption, you know, network, all of that stuff as they should. Mm-hmm. But they spend very little time and very little money educating and training their employees to not fall victim to the type of rusing mm-hmm. um, that all of a sudden makes all of that money that you spend on the technology worthless. Because I always say, I didn't hack systems, I hack people. And so if I'm able to get somebody at your firm on the inside to tell me their passwords, to explain to me how your network is set up, how the firewall works, the encryption, the all of these technical things, now that information I can either use if I'm also a hacker or I can sell to hackers. Um, and just a brief sidebar into the the dark underbelly of ransomware attacks. Most of the ransomware attacks are done by small gangs. And these small gangs, it's almost like a Mission Impossible setup where they have a team of three, four, five people, and each person has an, a certain expertise. And one of the people on these ransomware attack gangs is always the social engineer, the ruser. And their job is they're, they're like the first person that goes in and they make oftentimes phone calls, emails, texts, where they're fishing to learn about the systems, the servers, the network, all of this stuff, so they can make the hacking so much easier, right? And at the end of the day, the weakest link in cybersecurity is always the human being. Oh, I, wow. The weakest link is always a human being. We had a a fraud case happen with us um, a number of years ago. And I remember at the time the police saying that it's almost always connected to somebody that you know, somebody that is like close to your family, somebody. And I'm like, no. And, and it did, it turned out to be, but it was just a case of this where it's, you know, again, people, humans, like knowing yeah. and knowing what certain passwords and what certain things would be and not changing them enough. I mean, on a human level, I'm not talking on the big companies and ransom, like ransomware is a term that I hadn't even heard of until, until I heard you mention this now. Yeah. Well, I mean, the ransomware attacks are just increasing exponentially. 80% of ransomware attacks, there is no one ever caught and there is no money ever recovered. Now think about that. If eighty percent of burglaries, you know, or carth or mur- you know, you know, it just people would be up in arms saying, you know, we need to hire more police and we need to do a better job because nobody gets caught, nobody, you know. So there's no consequences. So of course the attacks are going to increase because people are, you know, there's there's, you know, you, you know, <laughs> what's that? One out of five times you get caught. Four out of five times you get away with it. So the odds are in your favor as a criminal. And until that gets changed. Um, ransomware is going to become bigger and, and unfortunately more, more, you know, more dangerous. You know, I mean, we're all, you know, I'm sure your listeners are getting the phishing, you know, email, the phishing text, the phishing phone call, right. Where they're trying to get you to click on something, trying to get you to open something, trying to get you to input personal information. And look, theoretically, I'm an expert and I get them all the time. And sometimes I even go, wow, that one is good. 
Mm -hmm. That one is really good. And I have a little thing I'll share with your audience, which is the 30 second rule. You know, remember when we had kids, we had the five second rule where, you know, if something landed on the ground, you could pick it up and put it back in your kid's mouth as long as it wasn't five seconds. I figure we're grown up so we can go a little bit longer on the time 30 seconds, which is when you get that funny or strange text, email, phone call, you got to not do anything for 30 seconds. Don't you, because right away it's going to say, Oh my gosh, there's a problem. You got to click on this. Oh my gosh, you've been hacked. You better do this right. You know, whoa, just take 30 seconds, close your laptop, put your phone down, walk away, wait, just, you know, count the 30. And when you come back now, you're going to go, okay, now let me, because the tendency is to just hit it right away, right? Mm -hmm. Click on it right away, answer it, respond, because we've gotten so used to that um, and our brains are kind of wired now, right? Um, And you have to stop that and then, I'm telling you right now that when you go back to that email that you had a little funky thing, but you were just about to, now you're going to go back and go, oh my God, I can't believe I almost clicked on this. This is the spelling errors. The email is from, you know, blah, 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 at gmail.com, whatever. You know, you're going to see all the clues that let you know that this is just phishing. Yeah. Oh, what a great piece of advice. Thank you for sharing that because I can 100% say the amount of text emails, messages that I get that fall into this category have amplified like tenfold. They have just amplified. And we had a couple in the last week where it actually caught me. I was like, oh, I think that that's this, or I think that's this. And it's like, no, no, it's not. Or one was to renew a warranty on something that I'm like, wait, I don't think it's, I don't think we had this. And I said something, Brad, he's like, do not, my husband's like, do not. And I'm like, well, I thought it was a renewal. It actually came from like a, like a, a shop. And it was just, it's just interesting to me and an observation to go look at how much people are doing and trying. And it's call it resourceful or whatever. I don't know. Creative. There's a lot of different ways that people are trying to find access to information. Right. Yeah. Wow. And so there's a lot of different parts to your story that I do want to dive into, but I also want to know, like when you went and you built your own business and you went this direction, just for the listeners here, I know that doesn't give it the whole book away is when did you stop? Like what, what was something for you that went, okay, I think I'm not, I'm no longer doing this. This is not something I want to be a part of. It's not something I want to do. Or when did that shift for you? So when the crash of 2008 came, right, you know, in the world, the global economy, you know, the great recession, you know, everything crashed, corporations weren't hiring. Um, and so they, you know, they were laying off people, you know, major corporations were going under general motors had to be bailed out by the U.S. government um, and um, corporations were certainly not hiring spies at that time because they were just trying to survive. They didn't care about what their what their rivals were doing. They were just like batting down the hatches. Right. Yeah. So all of a sudden I had no income. And of course, as you know, the, the crash went on for quite some time. You know, it was really bad for, you know, 18 months or so, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um so I had no work and I, you know, had a family and a mortgage and bills and, you know, and even though I had made a lot of money and, you know, I wasn't a spendthrift, you know, if you have zero income mm-hmm. um, and you have expenses, you know, your, your, you know, your savings go down very quickly. And so I realized I needed a job. And so I got a job in corporate America, um, which was pretty hilarious because I had never worked in corporate America, even though I was doing all of this rusing to steal secrets from corporate America. I'd never mm-hmm. actually worked there. And what I found 
much to my shock and 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 uh, chagrin was that the lying done in corporate America face to face was far worse, in my humble opinion, than the lying that I'd been doing on the phone. And um, if uh, you know, I hope some of the, the your audience will will pick up uh, a copy of Ruse or listen to the the audio book, which, as you mentioned, I narrate. Um, and if you're listening to the book, you're reading the book and you're not liking some of the moves I'm making and the tricks I'm doing, reader, hang in there because I get my comeuppance in the end. Mm-hmm. I go from being the ruser to the rusee. I go from being kind of the perpetrator of the scams to being the victim of the scams because here I am very naive in corporate America and I'm believing that all of the promises that everyone's making to me, uh, the people that I think are on my team and that we're working together and here everyone is stabbing everybody in the back and lying about everybody and creating all of this office politics, you know, which of course I didn't know existed. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I certainly didn't know it existed in such a cutthroat way. Um, but that's kind of my personal favorite part of the book, um, is when I'm in corporate America. And then when I came out of corporate America, I was so depressed, um, that at one point I sat down and I wrote a suicide note. Um, now it wasn't me actually contemplating or writing suicide. Um, but it was this character that had kind of come through me. Um, and it took me all the way back to when I was an English major in college before I was an actor. And all of a sudden I wrote this short story and I read it to a friend and an actor friend. And he said, you know, that's pretty good, you know, and the writing was very rough, but the story was very true. You know, I was writing from a real place of personal pain. Um, and it gave me the idea. And that was the moment where I, I, wanted to write and I started to write. Um, and it, around that same time when I started to write uh, as an outlet for my sorrow, um, because now I had my acting career had gone by the wayside, <laughs> my spying career had gone by the wayside, my corporate career had gone by the wayside. I'm like, well, so I started writing and, um, to my surprise, getting all of these stories published, you know, which is not an easy thing to do. Um, and I was very surprised and, And basically I wrote a whole bunch of short stories. They got published. I started writing, you know, some nonfiction that got published. And at the same time, as corporate America started to come back, some of my old spying clients started to come back, but it just didn't feel the same for me anymore. And at one point my child heard me on the phone doing some rusing and, 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 and asked me what I was doing. And, and I had to say, well, you know, I'm just getting information from one firm that goes to another firm, you know, part of corporate America, part of the capitalist system, you know, kind of justifying it to my eight-year-old and my eight-year-old went, but it's dishonest. Oh, I know. And I went, I went, yeah, you're right. It is. And that was the kind of the light bulb moment where I said, I have to get out of this. This is just not who I want to be anymore. And, um, and so that was, that was basically the beginning of the end, uh, beginning of my writing career end of my spying career. But then that led to, thank you for sharing all that with us, honestly. And there's nothing that puts life in perspective like the words from kids, right? Like they just, they say something and it's like, oh, Um, it's interesting because I do think that, you know, when you look at all the different things that you did do and what I, what I could take from your book and listening is this piece that, you know, there was a lot of grit that came from the work that you did, because it's what you had to do in those times to make things happen. And I love how you talked about, you know, ownership and understanding that the work of how all the work that you get to do now wouldn't be possible without having all of that past experience. 
So no, you can't resent no it, right? I just would love yeah. for you to dive a little bit more into that because I think it's really powerful. Well, you know, I I've listened to you know a couple of your 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 shows, and you said something which really uh, struck me, which was you know go back and look at your past and be proud. You know, go back and look at the things you did and really go, wow, that was amazing. Now, in the moment, you know, you maybe you're not thinking it's so amazing or you're, or you're not giving it the credit that you should have. Right. But when you look back, you're like, oh, my gosh, I'm like, I did an off Broadway play opposite James Gandolfini. You know, like, you know, I got a rave review, uh, you know, for a play I did with Callista Flockhart, Harrison Ford's wife in The New Yorker, you know, like those are pretty amazing things. Now, yeah, my acting career didn't pan out the way James Gandolfini's did, uh, you know, but not many people do. No. Right. So, you know, so you've got to go, okay, look, you know, you've got to take your, you know, your victories for you, you know? Um, and, you know, there's that, uh, that I guess expression, you know, compare and despair, right? Mm -hmm. So if you start comparing yourself to how much other people have or what other people look like, or, you know, it's just, you're not going to be happy. Right. Um, so, you know, I don't know if that answers your question, but, uh, you know, I think that that's something that I've really taken out of, of this journey, it, you know, w w which is what I say is, you know, take the journey you want to take, right? You know, I mean, you, you can't, you cannot make up my journey. You cannot make up like becoming a corporate spy and, and then working in corporate America and, and, you know, having everybody stab me in the back. And, you know, it's just, it's just insanity. It's a crazy story. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's the journey I took. And I'm, and like you said, I'm glad I, I I've taken it. And I would, first of all, I wouldn't have been able to write ruse. I wouldn't have been able to write my previous book, Malibu burning. I wouldn't be able to write all the things that I'm writing now mm -hmm. if I didn't have all of these experiences along the way that have now made me who I am. Yeah, I it's that's always been one of my eye openers is those pieces. Sometimes we have moments where we resent them or we're hard on ourselves and we look at it. It's like, you know what? I made those decisions at that time because that's the information that I had. That's what was the best decision at the time. Sure, we can all look back and make different decisions, but I love what you're doing with this now and how you're taking all of those lessons. You know, you put it into your book and you're now working and speaking and podcasts and sharing. And it's just, I think that's an incredible thing that I want people to be able to take away from you and your story. Yeah. And I, I tell people, you know, um, the pivot, right. Um, that it's never too late to pivot to the career that you want to have. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's what I've done. And, you know, and obviously I'm not a kid. Um, and so I think that for your audience, that's the, the, the thing that I want people to know is you can pivot, you can pivot to the career that you want to have. Um, and you can do it right now because I did, you know, um, and, you know, and it's been really wonderful. Now, sometimes maybe you're, you, you, that, that career pivot, maybe that's not going to be your, um, financial source, mm -hmm. you know, but that doesn't mean you can't do it. You want to write a book, you could write a book. You know what I mean? You want to record an album, you can record an album. You, you want to, you know, become a painter, you know, or, you know, you, whatever it is you want to do, you know, you can do it. You know, <laughs> you want to become a, a whitewater rafting guide. Yeah. You know, like what, what, you know, you can do it, you know, now I, you might not pay all your bills. So it might have to be kind of a part-time thing or, a, or an avocation rather than a, a career in terms of a job, but mm -hmm. so what do it. it. It's, it's so powerful because, you know, I think I always think at the end of your life, you want to be able to look back and at least go like, I mean, I, I put myself out there. I tried, I did those I, things and you're right. You might pivot 
and and do the things. Like I've had um, friends or clients who had jobs they didn't like at all, but I'm like, you've got to find something else in your life that you love doing. And eventually that can start to open the door to other opportunities. But you can't just let the job define you as like, I hate this, but this is what I have to do. And then be miserable all, in all areas of your life. Like right. one of the things that I found so entertaining that I don't even know where to start with questions on this because I just think it's entertaining is there are so many different parts of your book where you share about the connections or paths that you were able to cross paths with other um, celebrities. And I'm just, is there any stories that stand out for you? There was a couple for me, but is there any stories that stand out for you that you would love to share with the audience? Well, I'm going to come back and ask you a question about that. So, you know, you know, one of the things, you know, I wrote Ruse during COVID, right? So it was obviously a terrible time for the planet. And so I wanted to write a book that was fun to read, right? And the thing that I find fun or I found fun about writing the book is it's kind of two books. It's a corporate spying book, obviously, but it's also a celebrity tell-all kind of book yes. where I have these crazy encounters with celebrities kind of in pivotal moments, not just of my life, but of their lives, which is just so strange. So coming back to you, which celebrity story do you want to know more about? Well, I just, it's not as fun of a story, but there was the two, um, like sitting on a couch with Paul Newman was pretty, well, that was kind of a, an interesting story. And the other one led me down a YouTube rabbit hole where I was like, is he actually in that video with mm -hmm. OJ Simpson? And you were. And that, to me, when you were naming the dates, I mean, I'm old enough that like, when you were naming the dates of the times, roughly when things were happening, I'm listening to it going, isn't that pretty close to the car chase? Like, isn't that pretty close to everything that happened? And it was. Yeah, it was so that was the one that yeah. really stuck out for me. Not yeah, a yeah. story, but it did stick out for me. Yeah. You know, so again, you know, I'm an actor an actor, you know, we need jobs. And my manager calls me up one day and he says, Hey, you know, they're shooting this exercise video, you know, it's going to pay this blah, blah, blah. I'm like, oh, okay. You know, but I said, you know, uh, you know, as long as there's no dancing, cause you know, I, I can't dance. I'm not a dancer. You know, he's like, no, no, it's an exercise video. It's for OJ Simpson. And I said, what, you know, OJ Simpson, my God, you know, he was like a hero. And, you know, I, you know, I remembered him as a kid, you know, playing football, you know, I'm like, oh, I am so in. Well, of course, I show up on the set and there's a dance floor and it's in a dance studio and there's a choreographer. And right away, the choreographer has, you know, they're like two really attractive women who are great dancers, uh, OJ, you know, and me and my buddy. And, uh, you know, he's, they're going, OK, we're, this is the first routine. And, and, and I'm like, and he, the choreographer comes over to me and, he, and basically he's about to fire me. He's like, oh my God, how did you get this job? You're the worst dancer I've ever seen in my life. And OJ says, no, 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 no. Rob's making me look good. Rob stays. Because number one rule in Hollywood is make your star look good. And OJ was nervous that he wasn't going to look good in these routines. And so by having me in the background good. looking <laughs> looking so stiff and awkward, uh, it made OJ look like a better dancer. So I, I got to keep my job because OJ vouched for me. And it created this whole strange thing where the rest of the shoot, I don't know why to this day, but he bonded to me. We became friends. He wasn't really talking to anybody else on the set. Um, and then, of course, I began to witness all of these things on the set, which were incredibly strange and bizarre. He was sexually harassing this blonde woman. Um, of course, at the time, I had no idea who Nicole Brown Simpson was. But later, 
the 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 physical resemblance between the the female dancer in the video and Nicole Brown Simpson was striking. So, you know, so it's just all, you know, and, and now he's sexually harassing her openly. And, and it was this whole crazy thing. And as you know, it's a chapter in the book. Yeah. Um, and again, it's one of those, you just can't make this stuff up. And, um, and then that, you know, that whole OJ thing for me, you know, has continued, you know, after, of course, the murders, everybody was reaching out to interview us because they wanted to know what had been said. Um, um, and I didn't want to go on entertainment tonight or whatever, because I was a legitimate actor. I did call the, you know, the district attorney's office and they didn't seem very interested in all of the stuff that, you know, that I had personally witnessed. Um, so it just was very strange. And then of course, as you know, years later, they did a TV series, you know, the people versus OJ Simpson, and they recreated the exercise video in that series, which means an actor got paid to do my bad dancing. <laughs> the irony of that one is just, it's just interesting. It's just interesting. Well, you do it really, it's entertaining to listen to. And you're right, because I got to learn what corporate rusing was, but it was very entertaining from a like background on different parts of Hollywood. And as you were talking about the set of VR, I'm like, okay, first off, I love VR. Like I did. Um, and so when you were talking, I was like, it's gotta be George Clooney that you were, that you were referring yeah. to. And then the Yoko Ono store story was the other one that blew me away. That must've been a, an interesting experience. Yeah. I mean, look, they, they, it was just, I think one of the reviews described those moments as there's like a Forrest Gump element yeah. to my encounters with the, you know, where all of a sudden I'm having a conversation with Yoko Ono where, you know, I'm talking about how my acting career has kind of gone by the wayside and I'm burned out. And she's like, oh yeah, the same thing happened to John too. I'm like, well, wait, well, hold on for a second. You're comparing my acting career with John Lennon's musical career? Like, well, well, well hold on for a second. You know, it was just, you just can't make that stuff no. up. But, you know, uh, you know, everything in Ruse is true. I'd like to say I've written an honest book about lying. Yep. Um, you know, um, so yeah, you know, I, 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 I hope people enjoy it because, you know, like I said, it, it, it reads like a spy novel, um, but everything in it really happened. Yeah, I love that. It does read like a spy novel, but it's it's so entertaining at the same time. So I definitely wanted to just touch on a few of those points. And did I read somewhere that they're looking at creating a series of some? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's in development for a TV series. Um, you know, I mean, I always knew because obviously I have some experience from the acting side. I, I didn't have any from the the writing producing side, but um, it's definitely a long process. Um, you know, I had no idea it was so long. Um, but yeah, you know, there's a, a, a great production company behind it. The, there's a showrunner attached. Um, and, um, you know, not only did we develop the first season, but we've developed future seasons because that's what's required now, because for a big studio to buy it, they, you know, I mean, sometimes there's a limited series. We see them where they took like a one one year or six episodes or something, but most times they want to know that if the show is successful, it can run and there's, there's enough material um, so that they can really make money on it because obviously the the longer a show runs, the more money they can make. So, um, so yeah, so there's been a lot of, cause you know, the book is, you know, it's not a long book, it's 300 pages. Yeah. Um, but you know, to have five to seven years of a series they're they, they're like, well, what other stories do you have? So I'm like, Going, oh yeah, there's this one, and oh yeah, there's that one. Oh, I forgot this, you know. So I'm having to kind of really help them create all of this content. I love that. Oh, I love that. 
Now, if you could look back at your um, younger self, and I know you've said it, but I just, in some ways, what is something you are so proud of that you have done, accomplished, that you worked through, that you persevered through? You know, I think, you know, it's funny, you use the word grit, you know, um, and I think that there there was something, um, a buddy of mine, he, use, he uses this word, uh, grinding it out, grinding it out. Like, you just keep grinding every day. You know, you go to work every day, or you write every day, or you, you know, take a walk every day, or you tell your kids you love them every day, whatever, whatever these things are that you, you keep doing, because when you can keep doing something, it becomes a habit. Um, and if they're good habits, you know, um, as opposed to bad habits, if they're good habits, you know, that's, it just makes life easier. Cause now you, this is your habit. This is your habit of, you know? And so, yeah, I mean, there was, a, there were a lot of tough times, you know, um, you know, paying for college, you know, myself, my freshman and sophomore years of college, like I didn't get to go out to parties and, you know, I didn't have a girlfriend. I didn't, you know, I, I didn't have enough money to go out and buy a slice of pizza. You know what I mean? So, so, you know, those were tough times, but man, did they pay off in terms of my ability to survive anything, anytime, any place, anywhere. Because if you can, if you can do that at 19 and 20, you know, you're, 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 you've got some, you know, you've got some, you know, tough bark on you. And, and I, so I think that's the thing is those painful lessons in life pay off down the road. Mm, they sure do. They sure do. And when I think back, even when we, like, I think back to when we were first married, we joke often that, you know, we had to make $20 a week work for groceries. People are going to yeah. laugh right now, but like, that's what we, that's what we could do. That's literally, and we could do it then. It wasn't astronomical like it is now in a lot of ways, but you can look back and go, you know, somehow we found a way during some of those times when we weren't sure how we were going to make it. So you start to look at, no, like you're building these muscles all during our life and what we're doing. So I love, absolutely love that. Where can people connect with you and learn more about you? I'll make sure everything is in the show notes. But where do you hang out the most? Oh, well, thanks for asking. Um, you know, my website is a great um, place to go because, um, you know, obviously you can purchase Ruse. You can purchase my previous book, Malibu Burning. Um, but you could also see a lot of cool stuff on there. The trailer for Ruse is on there. So you can actually view that, uh, which gives you a sense of what the series is going to look like. Um, and, um, you can read other things that I've written. Um, and you can also email me right from the site. Um, there's no filter. There's nobody else reading my emails. They all come to me. I love to hear from people. Um, if you're looking to get into corporate spying, send me an email because I'm here to tell you there is so much work for corporate spies. I'm out of the business, but I can certainly point you in the direction. <laughs> <laughs> So if you're looking for some extra work and you're listening to this, reach out and email Robert then. Yeah. So the website is just my name, robertkerbeck.com, you know, K-E-R-B-E-C-K. Um, I'm on Instagram a lot. I like Instagram. So those are the, probably the two best places to find me. Perfect. Did you start a podcast too? Did I see that? No, 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 no podcast for me yet. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Got it. It's a fun platform though. It's a great way to connect with so many people. Yeah, well, you know, and I I always say to people that are kind enough to have me on on their show, if you're ever in Malibu, California, you have to let me know. We'll go out for the proverbial cup of coffee or beer or whatever. And I've had three people now that have had me on their program, you know, 
people come to Southern California, vacations, business, whatever. And we've gotten together and we've had a great time. And, you know, that's, I really like that about the podcast community is it really is close knit um, because it's so new still, it's still really small. And, you know, everybody kind of knows people. People are always recommending me like, hey, you know, I had you on and I told this guy, I said, you you love this guy. You know, it's just, it's really, I've really enjoyed that. Yeah, that's actually one of my favorite things. I can't tell you how many times I get a referral from somebody. They're like, oh, I thought of so-and-so for your show. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, they are referring me back and forth. And it is, it's a beautiful small community. So if I ever go to Malibu, California, which I would love to, I will definitely connect. Wonderful. So I have one more question for you. It is, what lesson in life are you most grateful for? Ooh, that's a tough one. What lesson? Man. I mean, I guess this is a an obvious one, but um and it's simplistic, but it's so true. Be nice. <laughs> you know, be nice. <laughs> I mean, you know, so many times we get so busy, you know, so self-absorbed um that we forget to slow down and be nice. And, and, you know, usually the reason you're not nice isn't that you're not a nice person and isn't that you don't want to be a nice person or you don't want to do the right thing. You're just, you're just so like on your, your journey that you're chugging down the road and now you're, you're just running too fast to, you know, take your time and be nice. And, and when you, when you don't take that time to be nice, it can come back to haunt you later on. It really can because, you know, you're meeting people all along the road and they remember those things. You know, they remember, oh, you were too busy for me then or, or you know, you didn't really pay attention to me then. And, and you didn't do it most times because you were being mean consciously, but you still didn't give that person the attention or kindness or whatever that they deserved, even if it's just a moment, right? So that, that's what I would say. I love that. Everyone can take advice from that alone is that fact of being nice. Because I always say like, you don't know, you think you know someone's story and you never know their story. So you could be meeting a person on like their worst day of their life and have no idea, but it's interfering with what you're doing that day. And now all of a sudden you're judging or being critical of a person when they might just be walking through their worst nightmare. We have just have no idea. So being nice, it, it sounds so simple, but it's so important. Mm. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much for being here. I will make sure everything is in the show notes. And as you're listening to this, honestly, like get the book, listen to, I love audible. So listen to it on audible and it is such a entertaining, fun, and like very inspiring story. So thank you for sharing it with us. Oh, Marsha, it was a pleasure. I really enjoyed this. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Own Your Choices, Own Your Life. If you love this episode, I invite you to tag me on social media with your takeaways or share it with a friend. Please, if you feel called, take 30 seconds to leave a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. Until next time, remember when you own your choices, you truly own your life. (laughs) 